That heads up. If you need a Bible, they are there for you in the back. If you do not own a Bible, that is our gift to you. If you are new, welcome. My name is Ryan and I'm your pastor. And today we are going to be in the book of Colossians. Before we get into that, we have a little bit of family uh, news and family business that I like to do because we are a chapel family. We're not just a church gathering. We're a family of people who come together, who get to know each other's lives. And there's a couple here that's moving because the husband is in the Air Force. And as you guys know, military people get stationed all around. So if you're ever moving or if you're getting restationed somewhere, I would love to have the opportunity to pray for you. And that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm just going to pray for this couple that I've gotten to know. It's been a blast getting to know them. So if you could join me in prayer, and we're going to send them off to serve our country in another part of the country. Uh, this is Bobby and Lindsay. Hi, Bobby. Hi, Lindsay. Love you guys. Love Graham. He's not here. He's in the back learning about Jesus. But let us pray for you and send you off well. Father, I thank you for the Ritchie family. I pray that their next chapter would be filled with your love, your grace, and your mercy, that you would pour your blessings upon them, that you would continue to raise Graham up to know and love Jesus with all of his heart, that you would commit this family to you more and more each week, and that you would show them a great church family to plug into uh, up where they're moving to. We love you so much. Thank you that we have got to cross stories here in Florida and look forward to seeing them again uh, in this life or the next. In Jesus' name, bless them, Lord. Amen. Sweet. So, Colossians chapter 3, it's where we're going to be. Uh, and today, I'm just going to preface and let you guys know that some of you are going to get scared by the radicality of this passage today, because it is scary. Grace can be a terrifying thing because it removes control from our hands, and it puts all the control in God's hands. So as you're flipping there, um, ready your heart. If you've been in church a long time, just whisper to yourself, just say, prepare yourself. And if you've never been in church, it's going to be a great day for you. Just say to yourself, it's going to be a great day for me. Um, and that's how this morning's going to go. One last bit of family news. Um, we, we are always looking for new greeters. We have a new newsletter that was put out uh, two weeks ago. So if you haven't gotten the new newsletter, it's back at guest services. And one of the volunteer areas that we really need right now are our front door team. So the greeters, the people who do the, the plates for the offering, the people who say hello, the people who get the new information and help show new people around. We're looking for new front door people. So if that's you, if you're like the born to love people type of person, uh, I'd love for you to connect with Angie. Angie is somewhere right there in the back. So there's Angie Dole. She oversees all of that. Connect with her. Get plugged in with her to be the face because what we do here is church family. It's not just a church about me or a church about the music. It's a church about Jesus, and we're all here to serve Jesus, lead others to find him. And the front door is one of the most important parts because you're the first person that people see. They don't normally see me first unless I'm doing my normal paces. They see one of your bright and smiling faces, and I love that. So be sure to connect with her. Go back to guest services if you're interested in volunteering. And now to the word. Father, open our eyes to see your grace and mercy. Open our hearts to be changed by your word. God, help no one that's here leave in the same state that they walked in. Help everyone to find freedom and rest. Help everyone here to feel the radical nature of your grace that extends beyond our sinfulness that reaches us no matter where we are, no matter what we have done or are doing or will do. I thank you that you love me. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Let's pay careful attention to the reading of God's word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Man, so I went to New York for the first time ever this week. Have, who's been to New York? Okay, so you guys all know how ridiculous it is there. It's so crowded. Literally, one of the times I got on the subway, the people behind me were squeezing me in because the door was closing on this guy's bag, and it wouldn't close on the subway. And this was like, and so for those of you who know me, you know how much I love crowds. And by love, I mean I'd rather die than be in a crowd. So I'm literally here in New York, in a subway, people all around me of every variety, every type. And I know some of you that like, grew up in big cities. Los Angeles and San Diego, where I grew up, they're like big cities, but everything's spread out there because we have earthquakes. 
It's like when you have an earthquake, you don't stack the toothpicks too high because they'll come down. So there's just a few buildings here and there. But in New York, everything's crowded. Everything's claustrophobic. Even the buildings are trying to like cave in on me. And one of the things, though, that really impressed me when I was there was that um, I couldn't, like, everything's moving so fast, and, and you just don't know, because you know that a lot of people there have to be absolutely loaded. Because I went on Zillow when I was there, and my wife was like, I could totally live here when we're walking on the Upper East Side. And I looked at the prices of homes, and I'm like, you totally could not. You totally could not live here. Um, but you know, like, when it's like 30 million, 10 million, or if you really want to, like, go wild, you get a studio for, you know, a, a one-bedroom, not one-bedroom apartment, just like a one-bedroom, like a literal, like, sleep, eat, sleep. Uh, you get one of those for, like, a, a mere piddly $1.5 to $2 million dollars over by where my wife wants to get a $17 cup of coffee in the morning. Like, we could not live here. It's not feasible for me to pay that much for my coffee. But as we're there, I'm looking around, I'm like, okay, some, some of y'all here are rich. And I was, like, playing that game, like, guess who? Like, let's guess who the richest person is. And I'm looking around, and it's probably never the person you think. It's the guy that's, like, eating a hot dog, and he's been on the same bench for 30 years. And he's like, oh, I just own these buildings, you know? And, and I was walking around thinking, this is so crazy, because just being here... You can't tell who people are. You don't know who's rich. You don't know who's poor. You don't know who's mad. You don't know who's happy. You don't know who's going to mug you. You don't know who's having the greatest day because everyone's face is the same. Nobody smiles on the subway. And for me, that's a bad situation because I smile at everybody. And I took it as a personal challenge. Like, if you don't smile at me, I'm going to get you to smile before the end of this ride. And so I'd be staring at people. And I'd be like... <laughs> and, and, and my wife is trying to be like a local? She's like, no, don't act like a tourist. I'm like, I am a tourist. I have a giant camera around my chest. I'm wearing a sweatshirt hoodie in 30 degree weather. I'm pretty sure this is clear. But as I'm doing this, and as I'm playing this game, like let's like, label the New Yorkers which one they are, I started realizing and thinking, okay, wait a second. These people, like, there's this lure, there's this like draw, there's this lure, the lure that New York has of like, be cool, be chic. While I was there, I got these jeans, they're so skinny, there's no room for my calves to breathe. And then I got these leather chucks, um, and I was super pumped about that. I'm not going to go wild, they're like 30 bucks for my jeans, I'm, I'm excited because they have stretchy in them. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I started feeling like, oh, it's like you kind of want to fit in here. You want to fit in. And my wife said, oh, we could live here if we were only rich. And I remember this conversation because she said if we were only rich. And I looked at her serious as a stomach pump. And I said, we are rich. We are impossibly rich. And then I said, in a thousand years, this is all mine. Some of these people, they're not going to be here. I hope they're all here. But, but statistically, God owns the world. And I may have to wear my $30 Levi's right now while I'm envying some, you know, baby sheep wool cotton that some guy had a suit made of. That suit's going to burn eventually. The suit doesn't last. I mean, I've had a suit that didn't last just because styles changed. You know what, that look, you know what that's like? So as a pastor, we have these suits. We call them our Mary and Barry suits. You only want you, like, you want to see us if you're getting married in a suit, but you don't want to see me in a suit if you're not getting married. That's just the simple game. Like if I'm in a suit, somebody died or it's the happiest day of their life. It's one of those two spectrums. And I had my first suit and I remember like, you know when you buy your first suit from Men's Warehouse, you're, you're 19 years old and it just fits you like a poncho? I had that suit all the way up until like two years ago. So I do these weddings and my wife is like, you look ridiculous. You've got like these giant pleats in your suit. Like even the sleeves were pleated, I think. It was really ridiculous. And, and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm like, becoming this new person. I'm in New York. I'm envying all this stuff. And I realize this all fades away. And there's a reality that's, that's overriding this world that I'm failing to see every time I'm craving something in this world. And that's what this passage is about today. This passage is about you seeing yourself for who you really are. You seeing the reality that God already sees in you. And contrary to popular belief, spiritual growth isn't just trying harder, knuckling down. It's more and more seeing yourself through God's perspective, seeing what you have through God's perspective, because we are all walking around insanely rich, insanely blessed. We have been lavished on by the creator of the universe to such massive degrees. And as soon as I had that shift in New York, everything changed. 
It didn't matter to me when I saw the sweetest cars driving by. It didn't matter to me when I saw somebody who had the pair of jeans or the shirt or the jacket or the suit. And I'm not going to lie, I wanted, there was one point where I'm just like, I want a suit. Because I was walking down like the 9-11 memorial area and all these guys are suited up. But then I started thinking, I don't want to suit that bad right now. I've got literally like millions of years to wear whatever God has for me. And I'm sure it's going to be better quality than these piddly little things they bought from a piddly little store called Prada or whatever. <laughs> so, so here's the reality we have to figure out. If then you have been raised with Christ. So that's the first if. If you have not been raised with Christ... Then, then this doesn't apply to you. If you have not put your life in Jesus, then none of what Paul is going to say goes to you. But if you have been raised with Jesus, if you have put your hope and trust in Jesus, then you can seek the things that are above, where Christ is. What we're called to do is seek things that are above. We don't, we're not called to seek the things here that fade away. This life is so transient. This life is such a vapor. And I'm constantly talking to my kids about when they're a thousand and something or 10,000 years old. Silas is the most adorable because he has zero concept of death right now because I raise my kids awkwardly. So he'll be like, Daddy, how old will you be when I'm a thousand and four? He's four now, just in case you don't know. So I'm like, I'll be a thousand and thirty-five. Daddy, how, how old will you be when I'm five thousand and four? I'll be 5,035. Daddy, will you always be older than me? Yes. But he has no concept of, of age. To him, it's like, you're going to be four, then, then you're going to be 1,000, then you're going to be 100,000 years old. Because he, I'm raising him to see through this perspective that God's plan and God's sight of your life are so much bigger. And we spend so much of our life cramming as much as we can into this little tiny span that we call human existence on this broken world. And we don't plan for the rest of our eternities. And, and I think that breaks a lot of things down. I think it breaks down our marriages. When we're trying to have the best marriage for 40 years, instead of trying to help encourage and sharpen our spouse to be the best 100,000-year-old person they can be. Because one day, I'm going to have to sit across from a table, and my wife now, but then she won't be my wife, Amy will be there, because we don't have wives and husbands in heaven. We're going to be sitting across the table. We'll both be drinking coffee, because coffee is of the Lord, so she'll repent of the sin of not liking coffee, and we'll be there together. <laughs> and we'll be drinking coffee, and I hope that she can say something like, I'm so thankful that you pointed me toward Jesus when I was 28 and 30 and 40, because it made me a better 500,000-year-old. And then I'm going to sip my coffee and say, babe, you look great for 500,000 years old. Because this is the reality we live in. And you're laughing. I'm not laughing. This is real business. I'm not raising Jackson to be a healthy 22-year-old. Although I want him to be a healthy 22-year-old because I hardly ever find those. They're like unicorns in the world. Um, I, I want Jackson to be a healthy 22-year-old. And I want him to be a well-adjusted 5,000-year-old. I want him to get to heaven and say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised that God is this big. I'm not surprised that there's this much love here. This is what I felt like my dad was always talking about life like. Because we are raised with Christ. We don't have to sit around looking at this level, the earthly level. And here's something else that I realized when I was in New York. Thank God, literally, that I'm tall. I have no idea how you all do it. And by y'all, I mean anyone under six and a half feet tall. I don't know how you manage crowds. I don't know how you can be this close to somebody on a subway train for stop after stop after stop. Because I'm like right here and all the hot air is rising because everyone's exhaling and I'm like, oh, it's so stifling up here. But then I look down at my wife and she's like about to kiss a Puerto Rican because they're so close. <laughs> and and I, started to, I started to realize like just my perspective is so different. Like a six inch difference for most of you is massively different. I don't know that if you realize this, I see male pattern baldness coming before you do. I see it coming. And I, I thought that was normal. But then on the flip side, like, like I've got to really keep my nose clean because everyone stares right up it. So there's negatives and positives. 
But, but God's perspective, it's so infinitely higher. So if you've been raised with Christ, so the Bible says you die to yourself, you're raised with Christ. Literally, he's elevating your perspective of life. You no longer have to like look down to find value. You no longer have to look down to say, okay, what is going to make me happy today? You can look right to Jesus and say, this is what gives me satisfaction today. I can finally put these things in their proper perspective. Not that they're bad, but they can't be the main perspective. Because if the main perspective is all that we see horizontally and we never take a glance vertically toward the kingdom of heaven, our life is going to be one gerbil wheel after the next. And we're always going to be wondering, why am I never satisfied? Why am I never happy? Why does my happiness come and go, come and go, come and go? Because you're not rooted and founded in a perspective where you see the big picture. The picture we're looking at is little and small, and we, it's so hard sometimes, and I know it's hard. It's hard to see past the errands. It's hard to see past the relationships. It's hard to see past having to pay the bills. I get that, but what we need to do is make sure that we're seeing all of those things through the lens of the heavenly, eternal perspective because you've been raised with Christ. You've been lifted up by him. He has done it. You have been, past tense, raised up with Christ, and where he is seated at the right hand of God, that's your new perspective. So then Paul wants to give us the very practical. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. People ask me all the time, Pastor Ryan, here is my sin. Sin, exhibit A. How do I stop sinning for this particular sin? And it could be a hundred million sins. Every sin in the book that that anyone here struggles with, I've heard it. I've heard every sin. The, The most gnarly, vile sins you could imagine to the ones that we would consider tame that are still grieving the heart of God. And people say, how do I overcome this? So then I start asking about their life. Tell me about your, your life, like your situation that got you to that sin. So let's say somebody's sin, we'll do, we'll do a couple. Let's say somebody's sin is um, like a, a lust sin. Because I, I, I know this is very pressing and, and people hide it. But the statistics are there. Like so many people struggle with lust because pornography is so rampant. So let's say that's your sin. And you say, oh, I struggle with lust. I struggle with, with some sexual sin. And you know, how do I stop it? So if you're a 20-year-old guy, you come to me and you usually say something like, I've really been struggling. My girlfriend and I keep... Uh, we keep falling to temptation. And this is the 20-year-olds. And I'm like, okay, what do you mean by temptation? Well, we, you know, we end up like doing stuff we shouldn't. Oh, okay. So tell me like, how'd you get there? Like, were you just like walking down Tampa at noon and all of a sudden you're like, we need to have sex right now here on Kennedy Street? Well, no. Well, we went to my house. We watched a movie. It got late. We had a couple drinks. It was dark in the house. I was like, oh, oh. so you're telling me that you primetime painted a romantic moment. And then you're wondering how you ended up romancing. That's what you're telling me. Well, when you put it that way, it sounds like I, you know, I was just doing... Well, yeah, because you aimed, you painted the road right towards your sin, and then you sin, and you said, how did I get here? And, and we do it in different ways. We do it with our career. Some of us feel trapped by the American dream, and we feel like if we don't achieve everything that our peers are achieving, then we're a failure. If we don't get the things that our neighbors or our friends have, then, then we don't have value in ourselves intrinsically as a person. And we say, okay, look, I just, I know, I can't, I can't give to this. I can't be a generous person. I just, I'm trying to make it to that next level. And I've heard this so often. You know, when I'm talking, I talk to people about giving, like, because we're a church. So we talk about, hey, giving is good, not just for the church. And because Jesus doesn't need your money, I don't need your money. I'm going to be okay. God will land me on my feet. But God wants you to have a generous heart. And we're going to get to this later because of all the generosity he's shown you. And then people say, I just can't do it. I can't can't be generous. Because their perspective isn't from eternity down, kingdom down. Their perspective is right here. And in their mind, if they don't have all of these things they think they need, then they won't be happy. But we all know know that gerbil wheel, right? Because we get the things that we think we need and we're never happy. And we say, how do I get out of this cycle? How do I get out of this cycle of just me, 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 me? It's like the country song, all about me, all about I, all about number one, oh my, me, my, what I think, what I want, what I know, what I like, what I see. Me, 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 me. That's, that should just be the American national anthem. How do we get out of that? How do we get out of that sin? We take our eyes off of ourselves, and we take our eyes off of our neighbors, and we don't play the comparison covet game anymore. And we say, God, what do I need to live faithfully for you. Because I've died to this self. I don't have to go on this gerbil wheel again. It's dead. It's my old life. I literally got baptized and I left that there. I left dependency on my bank account in the baptismal tank. I left dependency on any looks 
in the baptismal tank. I left dependency on any successes I could have vocationally in the baptismal tank. And when I was raised up again, all that I needed was found in Jesus, which is why when, when I baptize, I say you're, you're buried to yourself and dead. And when I pull them up, I say you're raised in Christ, a new creation. They're new. Their perspective is new. They no longer have to return to their sin. They can now set their minds on heavenly things. So it's, it's not just the practical, but it is the practical. When Paul says, set your mind on things that are above. So if you have a sin, backtrack to what makes you want to do that sin and ask yourself, what am I literally putting my eyeballs and my ears on? What are the things that are making me crave this sin? Because sin, it's, it's also like this sort of weed process. It just grows up and starts taking over. And if we're not pruning it, if we're not getting it when it's small, it becomes spiky and dangerous and it damages your children or yourself. And, and we all live in Florida. Like before I went to New York, my in-laws are watching the kids and I thought I better do something about my yard because it's, we made that transition, right, Floridian? So we had winter, which was like 75. And then we had fall where like leaves turned, they didn't turn really, like two, two trees turned brown. And then I had one tree in my backyard that lost its leaves for two or three weeks, and now it's fully green again. And as soon as the trees go green, we all know what's coming. Like the grass never stops growing. And the grass literally laughs at my lawnmower as I'm mowing. And the weeds, like I've got a little trim where there's rock and dirt. Anywhere where there's dirt, weeds just, they, they want to mock me. They come up and they grow. And I have, a, I have weeds that grow like bamboo. I think they must be related to the bamboo tree because I can kill a weed with weed spray stuff. And we all have to do this, right? Or you hire someone to do it. And, and literally the next day, it's just there and blooming. And I'll spray more. And I've gotten so frustrated at one point, I took the lid off of the Roundup sprayer. And I just started doing it in a trough. I was like, forget you weeds, you're all going to die. Now I have a huge dead spot of grass because I didn't, I didn't get it when it started. Like I let them get too tall and they got taller and taller and taller. And so, so much of our life is that way. We've been setting our mind on earthly things that we've let the weeds grow up. And we think the weeds are just the way that it has to be because they've always been here. What we have to do is go all the way back down to the root and say, where did this start? What am I setting my mind on? What am I watching that's making me want this sin? What am I looking at that's making me struggle in this area. Like if you struggle with coveting, I struggle with coveting. That's, that's a big one for me, especially when I'm in New York. Because I'm still trying to pretend to be young. I'm trying to pretend that like there could be an off chance that I'm a good-looking guy. But then, by the way, P.S., that all got shattered for me in New York. My hairdresser, who I will not name, but she's sitting here right now, told me like it may be time to start thinking about hair products that promote growth and healthy scalp. Like, that was like the nice way that she put it. It wasn't really that kind. I'm not mad at her or bitter at all. I just wanted to know that it hurt me deeply. <laughs> just kidding. But, but literally, because I, I think about that stuff. And like, I wake up in the morning, and I'm like, oh, my hair is everywhere. When my wife cleans the bathroom, she's like, I'm finding so much of your hair. And, and you're thinking, this is kind of trivial, Ryan. Like, male pattern baldness a lot of men suffer from it. I actually know the statistic right now. But, but here's the non-trivial part, that it literally is consuming so much of my insecurities. It's making me insecure as a human because hair, of which God knows every hair on every head in the entire world, is falling. Like Because gravity is defeating my hair follicles, my sin nature is grasping onto that. And it's just whispering insecurities to me. Things that I didn't even know that I, I leaned on before for my identity, worth, and value, I'm now learning I leaned on these things. And that's a good thing. That's an okay thing. And it's okay to, by the way, if, you, if you're doing this, if you're going through the struggle with me, it's okay to get Rogaine or whatever. Um, and that may be a sin, but it may be just trying to keep sin from winning. Um, it's, it's one of those two areas. Okay, and I tell Amy all the time, I tell my kids, uh, the same eternal perspective. If I lose my hair now, I get it back in the end. If I lose my vision now, like it's blurry for a minute, I get it back in the end, and it's way better. If I, if I get the curvature spine from getting, you know, as you get older, like gravity just starts pulling me down, I'm going to be walking upright later. Like the majority of my life, I have hair, perfect vision, and I'll be able to run and jump again. Right now, like, yeah, I run slower, jump less high, and my hair's leaving, and my vision's going bad in my right eye. But this is just, 
a small season. So I'm trying to set my mind on things that are above. So when I, I feel an insecurity, I say, okay, God, what am I not trusting in you for? Why is this bothering me so much? Or why does it bother me so much when I don't have this car or don't live in this neighborhood? Why does it bother me so much when I fail at this? What am I not believing and trusting that you did for me? And we're going to see right here. So here's what Paul's motivation is in verse 3. He wants you to set your mind on things above, not on the earth. For you have died. Everyone say, have died. Everyone say, past tense. Okay, past tense. You have died with Jesus. And I'm going to keep going. And your life is hidden. Everyone say, is hidden. Present tense. You are hidden with Jesus. You are covered in Jesus. You are justified by Jesus. Now, justification, it's a big churchy word that we use, and, and I just want to clarify this for some people because this is where it's going to get scary. When I say justified, some of us that grew up in the church have heard this phrase, it is just as if you've never sinned. Now, this is what this whole message is. You have died, so now God is lifting you up, and you are hidden in Jesus. You're in Jesus. This is justification at its finest, but it's not just as if you've never sinned. This comes from uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This is what Paul says. For our sake, he made him, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that we in him might become the righteousness of God. So imagine a ledger, and our ledger is covered with sin. So if we took every thought, every action, everything you've done wrong, everything you've said wrong, everything you've thought wrong, and we just ledgered that all out. A, you should be a little nervous right now, because that's a lot of stuff. It's not that God just went to our ledger and said, wiped clean. He did do that, and that is amazing, but he didn't just do that. He, he went to our ledger, he saw the laundry list. Like, we sing that song about Santa, if you're naughty or nice, and that's just a teaching moment for me and my kids. I tell them, you were naughty, and God still loves you in Jesus. If it were up to your niceness, you lose, and you get coal, and I save a lot of money, but God loves you, so I'll get you a Nintendo. Our list was so long, and God in Jesus said, I'm going to take him who knew no sin. His ledger had no sin. Well, on the ledger of sin and good deeds, Jesus had an empty sin ledger and a perfection of good deeds ledger. And God said, I'm taking him and I'm going to take all of your sin and I'm putting it on his ledger. And because he is infinitely good, he's going to take all of this and it's going to wipe out your spiritual overdraft. And then he's going to pour in infinite goodness to your ledger. So we don't just go from lots of sin to no sin. We go from lots of sin, lots of rebellion, lots of finding other things as our satisfaction for life, lots of pursuing other things other than Jesus, to having a life that is hidden in Christ, which means when God sees you, he says, you've done everything right. All that you need to enter heaven, it was done for you. It's clothed around you. When God looks at you, he's not looking at you saying, look at this massively wicked, evil person. He's saying, look at this person. They look just like my son. They're perfect. And this is what's terrifying about grace. This is what's, what's outlandishly outrageous that God would give us the record of Jesus as our own. That we are now hidden in Christ. Hidden. It's like when God wants to find you, he's digging through Christ when God is looking at you, you're wearing Christ clothing. So when you're feeling guilty, when you're feeling terrible about who you are or what you've done or your past or what you're doing or what you want to do, remind yourself. This is how you overcome sin. You remind yourself, I am hidden in Christ. I died. I don't even have to want to do this anymore because now Christ is all around me. And when God sees me, he sees me with absolute and complete and total love. Now, th this changes what spiritual growth looks like. This changes it because now you want to live in your new identity because you're so loved, not because you're so afraid. And, and Chapel fam, I'm tired of meeting afraid people. G God and Paul in this passage in Colossians, he wants us to get to what motivates us. He wants you to see what motivates you should be that you're new, not that you're just afraid or guilty or ashamed. 
And so often I feel like we just use guilt and shame on ourselves to motivate good living. But God does not do that in the Bible. God does not try to motivate people using pride or shame or fear. There are things that we should be afraid of. But that's never the primary motivator for spiritual growth. The primary motivator is see yourself as you truly are and how loved you truly are and whose you truly are and let God elevate your perspective so that this world and the things of this world will grow strangely dim because you have died and you are hidden, present tense. And one day in the future when Christ appears, you will also appear with him in glory. That changed the way that I walked through New York. Like when I had that flip, that switch just... Because then I started thinking, when Jesus appears, I appear with him in his glory. I want that just to settle on your hearts. You are so loved and so changed and so perceived as righteous by God that when Jesus comes again, you're part of that glory train. The holiness the grace, the mercy, the parade that you will walk down, and everyone that's there will be cheering and hooping and hollering for the magnificent work of God and Jesus Christ being displayed from your life. Just displayed. Because you died, and now you're alive, and now you have this new perspective, and your life will have been realigned finally fully one day when, when Christ appears. You will be right there with him. There will be no shame, no guilt. This is what Paul wants to do for you today. He wants to give you this perspective change so that you can finally be who you are. So that you can finally see yourself as God sees you. I was thinking, um, I'm always thinking about parenting because I'm a parent. And, um, and parenting is hard. It's really hard. Nobody tells you how hard it is. When we had our first kid, I read so many of the, like, the books. I read, you know, first you read the pregnancy books. Like, what to expect when you're expecting. Guys, you can skip that read. Just expect crazy when she's pregnant. And then, like, what do you expect the first three months? I'll save you a whole reading of a book. Expect yourself to be more tired than you've ever been in your life. So tired that you don't even know who you are. You don't know what your name is. You don't know how to function. You can't remember if you fed the baby, but you hope you did. Like, that's the first three months. And then, like, you sleep. And the first time, this is how you know it's bad. When you sleep for, like, four hours and you rejoice then you know your life's been in a bad path. But this is the first four months. And then all of a sudden your kids start moving. And it's so great, because they're moving, they're adorable. Like when babies are first born, I think they're all weird looking aliens. And by the time that they're like six or seven months, then I could finally legitimately say, okay, this baby might be cute. And they're cute when they smile, right? They do that toothless smile. And for some reason, I don't know what it is for me, but I love the first time each of my kids has grabbed my face. Because, um, their hands don't, they don't have dexterity yet. So they just like, and they have no personal space. Like they don't realize that like mouths are not for germs. So they're like, let's just like try to tickle the back of your throat, dad. I'm just going to try to rip your face off. And I'm like, I love you so much. That was all like fun stuff. Like all you new parents in here who only have that age, just soak it in even though you're a zombie most days. Because then all of a sudden your kids start talking. And when they talk, it's like they just have billboards of your own sin that you've handed down to them, whether you want to admit it or not. And I hear this only gets worse when they're teenagers, so I don't know how I'm going to have to deal looking at my own sin to that extent. Um, but but here, here's what I've been thinking about parenting. I am terrified, you guys, terrified. This is my confession, that I'm going to have um, pastor's kids. So I know some of you are like, oh, too late, dummy. You're a pastor. You have kids, a.k.a. pastor's kids. So there's this stigma that goes along with our kids, and that is that they're the worst in the church. And you know, some of you are doing it. You're doing this. I know what you're thinking. Like, yeah, I remember. I, my pastor's kid, he was the one that told me how to cuss and do drugs and all this stuff. And I'm like, so, so A, I try to s put my sin on display, and I share the little jokes about my kids' sins, because I want you to know that my kids are heathen rascals in need of God's grace. But I'm terrified because of this. The pastor's kids that I've seen in my life, and I've, I married one, by the way. Um, she's a glutton for punishment. She's like a pastor's kid. She's like, I just want more of this ministry pressure. Let me marry one. Uh, so we got married, and it was awesome. And now we're raising little kids that are pastor's kids. But I'm terrified because I've seen so many times pastor's kids get crushed by, like, the legalistic 
side of religion, which is why I think they all go crazy. Because they have all of these rules and expectations just put on them that no human can bear. So if you see my kid, and if he like cusses at you when he's 13, say, you're doing your dad proud. Now go repent and come back to Jesus. Because, because this pressure that's put on these pastor's kids, it's, it's my biggest fear. So I'm trying everything I can to just be this massive grace dispensary for my son. And, it, and it's hard because it goes against everything that my heart is telling me because my heart wants to give them law all the time. Because I can get my kids to behave. Like, if I want to, I've got this dad voice. My wife does not have it. My wife will be talking to the kids, and they'll exacerbate her in the same. I think my kids just know, like, there's something about an, a big man's voice that changes things. Because my wife will say, stop, you guys stop. And I'll say, babe, you're already saying it like you're giving up. Watch this. Jackson, sit down right now. You know, I don't do that. Wait. Or... Or if they know I'm really mad, it's like one of these. Like, I'll get all the way down to their level, and I'll pick them all the way up to my level, and I'll get in close. And I'm going to do profile, like, close. And I'll say, if you ever talk to my wife that way again, your life will end. And I'll put them down. And it's like Batman, eerie, scary. Like, it's literally kid in one hand, Southern Justice in the other hand. Southern, my spoon's name is Southern Justice. And, uh, and I put them down, and then they know. Like, we're not messing with this guy again. He's lost it. He's crazy. So then I started asking myself, okay, God, I'm clearly parenting wrong. Like, I'm, I'm raising my kids to just be afraid to obey. I'm using the sin of fear or shame or anger to squeeze out their other sins, like disobedience and just, you know, general rancidness that my kids represent in Jesus' name. Um, but then I realized I'm, I'm just making them prideful and afraid, which are both sins. But they're sins that we accept. So now I've been trying to do this other thing called grace, and it's hard. So parenting, according to the gospel, is hard because it goes against so much. So here's what the first step is. And some of you guys get the first step. I've seen you do this. It's so beautiful. When you say, well, let me do this first. Let me just go to a passage. So this is Second Corinthians 8. 8 and 9. And, and I love this because we've been talking about, like, on the leadership team, and and just don't hear me wrong, it's such a beautiful example, but we talk about giving a lot and finances because we're a business, we're trying to, to run this, and people tell me, Ryan, you just need to tell people that they need to give. And they, they better give because if they don't give, then they won't get. Now, I don't know that that's perfectly biblical. I feel like that's saying, if you give me a little carrot, God's going to give you a bigger carrot. So I'm leveraging like pride and prosperity gospel to get you to give more. And I love what Paul does. He's so brilliant, um, the Apostle Paul. He's talking to the Corinthian church and he's saying, I want you to be generous. I want you to give. I want you to understand why you're giving. But even Paul in this passage where he's talking about finances, which are the hardest things to talk about, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So when Paul wants to talk to the church about giving, he doesn't say, do it, you better, or I'm going to smack you on the wrist, and you're going to get beat up. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm so grateful for you, and I don't even say this as a command, but because God gave you so much, now you're free to give. Because Christ was rich, became poor for you. Now it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. You are who you are. Now you get to give generously back to God because of all God has done for you. And I love that. And please hear me. If, if you ever think that I'm after your money, and I've said this before, I'll say it a million times. I am not after your money. And I will prove it to you by saying this. I want you to be generous in response to how much Jesus has given to you. But if you ever think I'm after your money, go give it to another church. Like write a check and FedEx it to Baylife or to Fishhawk or to Grace Lutheran, whatever you want to do. I want you to see what it is like when your heart is freed by Jesus to such a measure that you can't help but to give. That all that's in you is like, I just have so much grace given to me, I just want to give. Now let's connect this all the way back to my story of parenting. And I've seen us do this and I try to do this. This is step one of gospel-centered parenting. You look at your kid and let's, let's take the sharing example because sharing right now in my household is going terribly. So I'll tell my son, share. And it could be either son or daughter, but Savannah doesn't share so I rarely tell her anything. So the son, my sons, there's a slim chance that they may do a good thing. 
So I'll say, boys, you need to share. And if I'm being like the legalist dad, and my son goes, I don't want to share, daddy. I'll be like, you share that with your brother right now. Okay, fine. I, okay, so now I just oppressed my power on him and made him have to share. But sometimes if I'm doing a Jesus thing, I'll say, Jackson, will you share that with Silas? No. And I'll look down and be like, buddy, God shared so much with you when he sent Jesus. He gave you everything that you ever need. So now you're free to share because you don't need this Pokemon card as much as you think you need it. And, and then he'll share. And I think this is catching on to Jackson because now he'll just randomly want to give us his money whenever he hears Amy and I talking about needing money. Because that, that's step one, and I've seen a lot of us do it. Now here's step two. Here's the terrifying reality of the gospel of grace. This is step two gospel parenting, and if this doesn't send fears down your spine, I don't know what will if you're a parent or, or a grandparent. This is what step two looks like. Jackson, I want you to share that because God in Jesus has shared so much with you. He's given you all that you need, but I want you to know that even if you decide to keep that for yourself, it will not change the amount that God loves you. It will not change the amount that he's happy with you because he is happy with you because Jesus is all around you. So do what you want. And not say do what you want with like the guilt flip up in the end to get him to give it. The literal, you are free to fail because Jesus is your everything. Now I want you to capture that right there. The emotion that you just had, which said this in the back of your mind then my kids are going to run rampant. That's, that's what you felt. Now, this is, this is a natural feeling. The gospel of Jesus, that we are dead to ourselves, alive in Christ, clothed with Christ, seated with him, it's so ridiculously outlandish and lavish. It's so grace-oriented that it has nothing to do with you and all to do with Jesus that when we receive it in that way, and when we bring that much of the grace into a child's life, we say they're going to go crazy. They're not going to listen forever. They need the wall slide and the southern justice and the Batman voice. They don't need you to tell them, even if you don't do what I say, God will love you and accept you and embrace you for all eternity, because then he's never going to share. But guess what? I've been doing this with Jackson now for, for months. Because I was always at gospel parenting part one, where I would connect it to like, Jesus gave you so much, so give. But then when I got to like the radical grace, he, he does sin a lot, but at least he sins openly. But none of my other kids so far are doing what he does when he hears Amy and I talking about money. When we're like, oh, we don't have enough money for this, we don't have enough money for that. He'll literally come up and say, Daddy, take as much of my money from my piggy bank as you guys need. He's seven and literally maybe the greediest seven-year-old I had met before these moments. He, if he sees, if you like put a dollar in a chair next to you and just let my son walk by you, he'll grab that dollar and be like, this was always mine. And now that same kid is, is saying, take as much money as you need. And his heart is so soft. Now so often he'll, he'll, he'll just give Silas something. We'll get him packs of these Pokemon cards they like. He'll be like, Daddy, I got this, this Pokemon card. It's an EX. It's really special. And I just gave it to Silas because I love him. Like, Jesus works? And this, the same with us. You know, I, one of my friends was, was joking uh, about the offering. And this guy, he's my buddy. He cracks me up because he's not a regular churchgoer or anything. And he's like, hey, you know, I'll, I'll be one of your ushers. And he's a little more hardcore than me. Like, I pretend that I'm hardcore. And I'm like, yeah, how are you going to do that, man? Tell me, tell me what your ushering goes like. He's like, it goes like this. I'll pass a basket down. i say, hey, you, with that Rolex, you throw that right in there if you want God to love you. And you just get that basket. No, no, pass that basket back. He didn't give enough right there. I know what you made. And, and I'm dying. And he goes, I'll, get, I'll, I'll fill those baskets. And I'm like, yeah, but you'll fill them with fear. You'll, fear you'll fill them with, with animosity or guilt. I, I want to fill this chapel with response to love and grace and mercy. And if you're not getting to what, what's called the Roman, I call it the Romans 6-1 question. If you're not ever getting to the point where in Romans 6-1, Paul says, what shall we say? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If you don't get to that question, you might not be talking about God's grace enough. 
Paul knew that the grace of God was so uncomfortable. He knew that it sounded so radical that somebody's going to say, well, if you give them this carte blanche freedom and forgiveness, they're going to sin. And what I tell people all the time is they were already sinning. We just didn't see it. So give them the freedom because it's the freedom and forgiveness in Christ that melts a hard heart. It's that type of freedom that gives people a free life. When Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, it comes from that type of freedom, where literally I wake up in the morning, I go through a day, and I probably sin more than I'll ever know, and I can walk with a smile, ear to ear, knowing that God loves me. Where I can go on a trip to New York, and I could start my trip coveting at a level 10, wanting everything that I see, wanting to be cool, walking like I'm hip, and getting all the way through that trip, and finally like halfway through, realizing I'm preaching a sermon on not trying to look at earthly things, and I'm not getting out of this earthly perspective. It's like God planned New York for me to go to, to show me, look dummy, and guess what? I still love you. Because that's God's offer to you in Jesus today. If you have died and your life is hidden with Christ, you're the kid. This is how God parents. God doesn't parent trying to beat us all the way to heaven. We don't get to heaven with bruises on our rear. We get to heaven because he's drawn us in with his love. And you are the kid, and God says to you, I I really want you to do this. I really want you to, to love these people, to be good, to be generous, to serve others. But if you don't, I still love you. There's nothing that you can do to get rid of my love for you. And we stand there sometimes like selfish kids with all of our own stuff, with all of our own problems, and we say, fine, I'm just going to keep it. And God says still, like a loving father, I still love you. You're mine. Nothing you can do changes that. And I hope, I hope that if you grew up in the church, you're feeling that fear that everyone from here is just going to go and sin. Oh, Ryan, you just gave them all permission to sin. One of my favorite comments that I've ever heard, because we're, we're t- we've been talking about giving a little bit, because giving is like the root issue. Like our money, the money trail shows what we worship, whether it's food or entertainment or ourselves or clothes. Money always shows us what we worship. And one of my favorite comments that I heard was, if you keep talking about grace, people are going to feel like they don't have to give. And I And my response is, if people feel like they don't have to give or they don't want to give, then I don't want them to give. And I know, like, the financial people that do all the bookkeeping here, they hate when I talk this way. My wife hates when I talk this way. She's like, tell them to give. Pass the plate. No, because God loves a cheerful giver. God is after your motives. God's after your heart. He's not after your external obedience. Your external obedience does not make God upstairs just clapping happy. I'm so glad that they look good all on the outside while on the inside they're selfish heathens that are joyless and no peace. Everything in your life, God wants to give you the proper motivation. And the proper motivation has to start with your perspective shift. Being who you are and who God sees you as right now where you sit. Holy washed by the blood of Jesus, a son of the king of the universe, a daughter of the father of all things, blameless. All of your ledger of sin is gone. It was erased. And then your account was filled with an infinite, perfect record. So now when God sees you, it's perfection. And I know you're sitting there saying, I'm not perfect. I know you're not perfect. But when God sees you from the eternal perspective, all he sees is the perfection of Jesus all around you. And if you start resting in that point, because next week, the very next phrase is putting off your old self, putting to death your old self. But if you don't start with this perspective shift, everything you do from here on out is religious legalism. Everything you do from here on out is fueled by pride, fear, guilt, or shame, and not fueled a response for what God has done for you and the freedom that he opens the door to. I'm literally, and you are literally free to sin. It grieves God's heart, 
Because the law serves a purpose. The law shows us what God loves. The law shows us if we live this way, then life will generally go better. There, there's all these aspects. I was going to do the, the breakdown of God's law. We maybe we'll do that next week. Because there's aspects of God's law that we need, and they are good. I'm not saying in any world that the law is bad. It is very, very good, and I love it, and I love this book. But until we're freed, if we approach this like a manual to earn God's acceptance and love, it becomes an anvil on the, on the soul. But if we realize that we're freed because of all that Jesus did, and we literally died to ourselves and we're alive in Christ, and when God sees you, he sees someone who, who can literally do no wrong. You're, you're done. You're in heaven. You're sealed. You're sealed because of Jesus, not because of you. This, this becomes a freeing experience to read. If you've ever struggled reading the Bible, it may be because you've been reading it, trying to measure up the whole time, not realizing that Jesus measured up to the whole book and now says, now you can read it just to see what I love. And, and, and live that way. Well, next week's going to be fun. Uh, we're going to be moving through Colossians. And, and I want you to know that as I talk about things up here, if you ever feel like, okay, I think I get, I think I get it. Jesus did everything that I need. So now what's next? Just Rewind. I know some of you guys won't get this reference because you're so young, um, but do you remember vinyl records? Hopefully most of you remember vinyl records. Um, and I'm feeling older this week too because I went to the 9-11 memorial and some of the people that we were, my wife and I were staying with friends, I was like, oh, where were you guys when 9-11 went down? And they were like, oh, third grade. And I was like, third grade? I was, a, I was a grown up already. I remember brushing my teeth watching the towers go down and like I just kept brushing and I was in shock and they're like, oh, yeah, I don't really remember it. I, like, I learned about it in history in sixth grade. It, it, it's a big, big difference when you experience something than when you just read about something or kind of look at it from a distance. And, and I can't even say because I was on the other coast. But I remember the emotions of the country. These kids that I was talking to, now they're all in their 20s. These kids, they didn't have the same emotion. And I could see it in their face. And I know some of you are like, well, yeah, it was like Pearl Harbor or this event or that event. There's something about not realizing who you are and you move on from it. But there's an emotion that happens that changes what you want, changes your motivation. If your life has on repeat the record vinyl that says, Jesus is all you need, and it skips, Jesus is all you need. Jesus is all you need. And some of you are desperately clawing for the next line because you're waiting for me to tell you now I want you to follow these 10 principles for a happy life, happy marriage, and obedient kids but it all comes back to Jesus is all you need and we're so prone to forget that that we just want to move from there and go to let me make lists, let me do, do, do and, and I'm for those things but if you forget the first line that Jesus is literally all you need. If you forget that, the rest of your life will unravel. You'll, you'll quickly turn to my security and my job is all I need. My identity as a parent is all I need. My identity as a spouse is all I need. And those things are not all we need and they never satisfy all that we want. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy.